Welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode one, Mind the Gap. The purpose of this podcast is to explore the emergence and impact of the two most important sound recording and reproduction machines of the late 19th century, namely the phonograph and gramophone. We'll be considering questions such as, where did they come from and where did they go? Why is Alexander Graham Bell walking around with a human ear attached to a box? Why was my sense of identity as a teenager so closely tied to my music collection? And what's the connection between Dracula and the Apple Watch? In fact, Dracula will only be one of many stories we'll encounter along the way, because the stories we tell about our technologies are what's at stake in the undead heart of this story of phonography. The history of any technology is inseparable from our understanding of what that technology is, And speaking personally, stories about the idea of sound recording and reproduction are more interesting to me than the exact configurations of the nuts and bolts of the various machines and mechanisms we'll encounter on our adventure. Of course, I'll mention facts and dates when and where relevant, but what I'm interested in fundamentally is not what happened when, but rather why things happened when they did, and how these events resonated with and impacted upon the changing dreams and nightmares of the late 19th century. Along the way, While I'll be putting my spin on the voices of the past, I also want to share those voices with you, literally, as our technologies get going, but also in the sense of reading you first-hand accounts, descriptions, and stories from the pens and presses of the past. The podcast format seemed to me a particularly appropriate medium to tell this story because it is, primarily, a recorded audio format. This is recorded sound asking itself, why am I here, and who am I? I'm interested in the ways in which podcasting is at once a culmination of our technological history, but also a throwback to a golden age of radio, itself a throwback to a pre-literate age when we saw, tasted, and felt through our ears. In the story I want to tell, these riffs, backsteps, and repetitions are not exceptions, but the rule. This is not history as a linear and logical progression from darkness to electric light and stones to microchips. We're not in a classroom, but in a field seeing faces in the clouds and hearing voices in the wind as time flies like an arrow and house flies like a... Is that the past or was that the present? Uh, And as it rings into the future, let's reflect on the fact that sound exists in time. And although a sound may have originated a long time ago, who's to say that it can't still be heard if you know how to hear it? Luckily for us, in addition to fading reverberations and dying echoes, we've of course got recordings, thousands upon thousands of them. So that'll help big time. In fact, allow me to remind you that you're listening to one right now. And my question is, what exactly are you hearing? Do you hear a person? I mean, I'm a human being, but am I my voice? And in what sense are the sounds in your head my voice? The pressure waves vibrating your eardrum are not the same pressure waves being expelled by my body into English words. You're hearing an imperfect, compressed, and approximate reproduction of the acoustic events that are recurring as I now speak. Nevertheless, in common understanding, my voice, that formerly ephemeral and inseparably personal instrument of self-expression, well, now it's yours. A zeros and ones version of it, at least, imperfect, compressed, and approximate. You can own it, sell it, distort it, reverse it, add a helium effect, bop it, mass produce it, 
well, you can do what you want with it, and I can't do much or anything to stop you because, after all, it's not my voice, it's yours. Uh, with that in mind, let's listen to another voice. Mind the gap between the train and the platform. Mind the gap. When you hear this in context, or any similar public announcement, what do you hear? Whose voice is it? Is it the voice of the train? Do you hear a person? This recording also originated from a body, in this case that of vocal artist Phil Sayer, a man with a family and a distinguished career in broadcasting and apologizing about train delays. Mind the gap. Well, it looks great on coffee mugs and t-shirts, and it's easy to paint on platforms, but let's also be aware that in part the phrase's brevity relates to the huge expense of data storage in London in 1968, when this digitally recorded automated announcement replaced the need for drivers and station attendants to make this particular warning. Speaking personally, when I'm traveling on the underground and hear Phil's warning, I don't think I hear a human voice at all. I hear something like London speaking to me or some inner voice of my own perhaps, but never Phil's, uh, never a human being sitting in a recording studio somewhere. How did we get to this point of nonchalance amid talking trains? In this podcast, our ideas about sound and what sounds mean to us are just as central to the story as our gramophones and phonographs. In my opinion, and I'm not alone in this, technology and thought are reciprocally connected. How we think manifests in new technologies, but new technologies, of course, influence how we think, including what we consider to be common sense. With that in mind, let's engage in a bit of, so to speak, doublethink. It's common sense that this voice is my voice, and I'm a sensible person on the whole, and in this respect, you know, I do want you to hear me speaking to you. Because we're all aware when we think about it that hearing this voice as my voice is just a sort of shortcut that assumes and ignores a process of me recording into a microphone, onto a laptop, editing the digital sound file and compressing it into an MP3 before finally uploading it onto a website where you can access it. But that being said, I also want us to hear these sounds with uncommon sense, to hear them as noises in and of themselves being created anew and differently with each playback, depending on your speaker setup, volume settings, and so on. And as we listen to my voice, along with all the recordings we'll play in this series, as well as whatever other recordings we encounter in our lives, I want us to start to learn to mind the gap. That is to say, to become conscious of the layers of both technology and ideology that structure our interactions with sound recordings. One obvious starting point to this inquiry is to ask the question, what do you mean by a sound recording? After all, in a certain respect, all forms of written language, including runes, hieroglyphs, and alphabets, are technologies of sound recording. We could even call them technologies of reproducible sound recording, and in the same respect we could throw in all forms of musical notation that have been handed down to us. These technologies, though relevant to our story, are not what we'll focus on. The technologies I want to focus on are the mechanical devices of the 19th century that began to write and read sound as vibration. And without further ado, let's begin listening to the past. We'll start back as far as it's possible to go, with the very first clearly recognizable recording of the human voice. The recording is of the song Au Claire de la Lune, and it was recorded on the 9th of April of 1860 by one Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville, a Parisian typesetter using his 1857 invention for writing sound, the phonograph. By the way, I'm going to be pronouncing the non-English names we come across uh, in an English manner, and uh, I do apologize when I butcher them terribly and completely. Okay, moving on. Scott's phonograph was the first machine, as far as we know, to write sound waves traveling through the air as vibration. 
More on that later, but first let's listen to it. This recording and many more like it are freely available on a fantastic website dedicated to the world's earliest sound recordings called First Sounds, and the web address is firstsounds.org. So, that's a voice singing over 150 years ago. Pretty crazy. The funny thing is, Scott never had a chance to hear the recording himself. In fact, it's quite possible that he never even conceived of doing so. It was first heard in 2008 by scientists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, California. So what are we listening to exactly? Well, Scott's hand-cranked phonograph recorded sound by using a bristle stylus to etch the vibrations caused by sound waves onto a cylinder covered in soot from an oil lamp. Many of his cylinders have been preserved, and so our friendly scientists only needed to write a program that functioned as a digital stylus, the needle thingy on a record player, to play back the recordings. What this makes apparent, putting aside the technical wizardry involved in playing it back now, was just how close Scott was to being able to play back the sounds he was recording. Yet interestingly, neither he nor anyone in his circles seems to have made this connection. It took another 20 years for the pin to drop, and when it did, it happened in two places at the same time, as is so often the case in histories of technology. Thomas Edison, through his work on the telegraph, realized that Scott's sound recording process could be reversed, and independently of Edison, a French poet and inventor named Charles Crow had also recognized this potential in Scott's machine. That's Charles Crow and not Cheryl Crow, the American singer. Crow submitted designs for a disc-based sound recording and reproduction machine just a few months before newspapers across North America and Europe published news of Edison's tinfoil phonograph in November of 1877. The difference was that Edison, whom media historian Friedrich Kittler has called Lord of the First Research Lab in the History of Technology, more on both of them later, had the resources to actually build the machine. That being said, Crow's designs would eventually lead to the disc-based rival of Edison's phonograph, the gramophone. So, what kind of world was this machine born into? The 19th century was a century of incredible technological and social change. Throughout the first half of the century, the development and implementation of the telegraph across oceans and continents had radically accelerated the speed of communication. In fact, as far as communication goes, the telegraph shrank the world more quickly than anything had ever done before. Before the telegraph, text could only be communicated as fast as the fastest horse, steamboat, or train could carry it. But after the telegraph, information, in the form of the dots and dashes of Morse code, could be sent around the world almost instantaneously. This development brought wars to doorsteps, it allowed for people to gather in rooms to chat through abbreviated text messages to family and friends in other cities and countries, it gave rise to new business models, both legal and illicit, and along with money and wars came the need for encoding, but of course codes could be cracked and identities could be forged. Well, does this all sound achingly familiar, perhaps to the sound of you've got mail, and Asa Bases, I saw the sign. The mythology of our times likes to think of the internet as a transformative technology that revolutionized communication and society. And in so many ways, of course, that's a true statement. 
but it's sobering to note how many of the Internet's features and capacities were first accomplished, or at least prefigured, by the telegraph. If you're interested in these comparisons, I highly recommend you check out Tom Standage's book called The Victorian Internet. Well, along with the telegraph came the railroads, which did for bodies something like what the telegraph had done for words. On this subject, I recommend Wolfgang Schivelbusch's book The Railway Journey, The Industrialization of Time and Space in the 19th Century. To cite just one example of how transformative these technologies were, it's at this time that we, as a species, decided we had to agree on the time. It just hadn't mattered before. You'd find out the time that people agreed on when you arrived somewhere, which would be close, but by no means identical to what the time was where you'd just been. I, for one, think this is a healthier relationship to the concept of time, but that's another story. Jumping ahead a few decades, in the latter part of the 19th century, developments in telegraphy eventually led to Alexander Graham Bell's first patent for an electric telephone in March of 1876. And let's step back and appreciate the magic of the telephone, which was thought of in its time as a speaking telegraph. For the first time in history, the human voice, in fact any sound with sufficient volume, could be separated from its place of origin and reproduced in another place. This may have happened to some extent with the whispering chambers and cups and strings of antiquity, but such technologies, though impressive, remain relatively localized and were certainly a far cry from the thought that someone speaking into a phone in London, for example, could be heard, at least in the imagination, literally anywhere on the planet remotely capable of being plugged in to this ever-growing technological network. Coming shortly after the phonograph would be the small miracle of the radio. Marconi's wireless telegraph of 1894 sent electromagnetic radiation through the air to be captured and expressed to sound by anyone with the right equipment within quite an enormous range. What a time to be alive. Of course, the small matter of how we use and make sense of these technologies isn't obvious, but has its own history. Take, for example, the rage of sorts that developed in the 1870s for concerts broadcasted not by radio, but by telephone. Long after the development of the radio, concerts continued to be broadcast by telephone across America and Europe. While it can't be said that these events happened often or that they were accessible to general publics, nevertheless, such events continued until at least 1932 in Paris. And in our smartphone era, perhaps it's not a stretch to say that we've come full circle back to this concept of what a phone is for. While the radio and telephone may have been transducing sound into electricity and sending our noises into a universal ether, they at least preserved the sanctity of the ephemerality of sound. That's to say, there still had to be a speaker or singer somewhere saying something once that could only be heard once. Enter the phonograph. In this age of wonders we've been considering, many commentators of the time described the phonograph as the greatest invention of the 19th century. Well, the phonograph was distinct from everything that came before in that it simultaneously embodied but disembodied sound. To clarify, the phonograph separated sounds completely from their bodies of origin in both space and time, and it did so by embodying sound in new bodies, at first tinfoil and then the cylinders and discs that you might be more familiar with. In other words, not only could it send a sound as far as anyone could carry it, but you could listen to that sound whenever you wanted to, and even more bizarrely, as many times as you wanted to. Scott's phonograph may have done the groundwork, but to all the world, his etchings and soot felt like simply a form of writing sound, not a form of preserving or storing sound itself for the future. 
Alongside the phonograph came the ideas that acoustic events could be archived, bought, sold, mass-produced, and owned. But parallel to these amazing capacities, there was also something about the sound of the phonograph itself that felt revolutionary and magical in comparison to the various forms of sound writing that had come before. These previous systems of sound recording, such as musical notation and alphabets, were very harsh editors that filtered and reduced acoustic reality to only preserve what carried meaning. For example, traditional musical notation records the pitch, rhythm, tempo, and volume of a musical idea, but as far as what the music actually sounds like, well, you have to play it to find out, or have someone who can. And good luck accurately notating the sound of a babbling brook, or even that of as simple a musical language, relatively speaking, as blues slide guitar, to say nothing of atonal noise-based improvisational music. But the phonograph was different. It indiscriminately wrote in its groove not only the stuff that carries meaning, but the complete spectrum of unfiltered noise, glitches, harmonics, overtones, and chaos of reality, or at least acoustic reality. And after all, it's this world of noise and overtones that makes every instrument and every voice sound both real and unique. And that's why this podcast is called Noise in the Groove, by the way. From the very beginning, it felt natural for people to compare phonography to photography, which was also developing, pardon the pun, in the 19th century. Though, while certainly popular and revolutionary in its own right, the images that photography produced were not as radically different from the paintings and drawings that had come before as reproduced sounds were from, well, it's hard to find a predecessor. Friedrich Kettler, whose fascinating book Gramophone Film Typewriter is an enormous influence on this podcast, expands on this idea by suggesting that the phonograph's true technological twin is not photography, but film, and that the mysteriousness of these twin technologies was that they were the first to seemingly store and reproduce time itself. That's deep, man. And I think it goes a long way towards explaining why, to this day, the experience of these particular technologies elicits such emotional responses. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. In the next episode, we'll set off on our unexpected journey into the audible past. I'll start by explaining why, like Middle Earth, it'll be largely based on England, but we'll also consider circus elephants, canned foods, the stars and stripes, and all sorts. If you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard in this episode, please post them on the dedicated website for this podcast, located at noiseinthegroove.com. But for now, so long, and thank you for listening. And to see us out, Rachmaninoff himself, back from the dead.